This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Valeria interviews Andrew G. Marshall, a marital therapist and author who offers straightforward advice for creating successful and fulfilling relationships. Getting the most out of love needs skills, and the good news is that these skills can be taught. If there is a critical voice in your head which not only runs you down but makes it hard to accept praise from work colleagues, friends, or family, Andrew's work will help you make peace with yourself and the world around you. Unlike many programs for boosting self-esteem, Andrew does not just treat the symptoms, but goes to the root causes of your negative messages and shows you how to make peace with the past. In this way, you will not only learn how to challenge that little voice in your head, but replace it with something kinder, more understanding, and loving. Most importantly, by improving your relationship with yourself, you will improve all your relationships, so that if you're looking for love, you will start attracting people who will treat you better rather than play games. And if you're in a loving relationship, it will become more equal and balanced. It is a common piece of advice. You've heard it a million times on TV talk shows and from friends and family. You've got to love yourself before you can love anybody else. There are also variations on this theme, like if you don't hold yourself in high regard, nobody else will. And loving yourself is the greatest love of all. In fact, we've heard this basic idea packaged in so many ways, so many times, that we tend to switch off and carry on as normal. But what would our lives be like if we did at least like ourselves? Wouldn't everything be easier and certainly more enjoyable if we weren't so self-critical? We'd start standing up for ourselves, stop friends or work colleagues taking advantage, When looking for love, we'd make better choices. Or when we'd found a partner, not let him or her walk all over us. Unlike a lot of other obvious truths, there's a real nugget of wisdom in the idea of loving ourselves. So why haven't we taken the advice on board? From time to time, Andrew does meet people who seem to have a very high opinion of themselves. I'm only attracted to really handsome men, said Charlotte. 42 when she arrived in Andrew's counseling office. Unfortunately, they've all just known how gorgeous they were. As she took down her relationship history, Charlotte peppered her conversations with examples of just how much she loved herself. I'm used to a lot of attention, or had been loved. He absolutely adored me and would have done anything for me. 25 years of counseling has taught me that how something appears on the surface and the reality underneath are often very different. At first sight, Charlotte did seem confident and upfront. However, she felt a little brittle, as if the slightest setback or anything under 100% approval and she would start to crumble. 
She had come into counseling because despite being able to attract plenty of men, she could not keep any that she truly wanted and did not seem to want the ones that wanted her. The more Andrew got to know Charlotte, the more he realized that she was swinging from high to low self-esteem with nothing much in the middle. Andrew G. Marshall is a marital therapist and author of 20 self-help books on relationships. His most famous books are I Love You But I'm Not In Love With You, How Can I Ever Trust You Again, and Learn To Love Yourself Enough. You can follow him on Twitter at Andrew G. Marshall and like him on Facebook, Andrew G. Marshall Therapy. He is based in Berlin, where he has a busy private practice, and he leads a group of therapists based in London. Here is the interview with Andrew G. Marshall. In your own words, who is Andrew G. Marshall? My gosh, that's one of the deepest questions <laughs> I've ever been answered. I'll do you the sort of simple version. I'm a marital therapist. I'm now 61 years old. I live in Berlin. I'm originally from England. I have a practice where I help couples and individuals make better relationships. And I think really at the heart of that is actually having a good relationship with yourself. Because if you actually feel bad about yourself, it's actually very tempting to think somebody else is going to come along and rescue us. Or the other way around, if we rescue somebody, we will feel better about ourselves. But actually having a relationship based on rescuing is something that can work in the short term, but in the long term sets up all sorts of difficult problems. Thank you for answering that complex question. Before we talk about your book, Learn to Love Yourself Enough, Seven Steps to Improve Your Self-Esteem and Your Relationships, I have a few warm-up questions, as I mentioned off-record. The first one is about love. What is love to you, Andrew? Um, I think love, there's a huge amount of acceptance in love. I would like to think that love is clean. And by that, I mean it doesn't have lots of strings attached to it. You know, if you love me, I will do X, Y, Z. Or if you love me, you will do X, Y, Z. So I think it's not just about accepting yourself, but it's accepting other people as well. And I think we have to be aware that love is a very loose term in, um, in English um, because you can love your mother, you can love your children, you can love chocolate, and you can love your partner. And all of those are very different kinds of emotions. Yeah, I love your answer. Acceptance, right. What do you think is the opposite of love? Um, I think that one's quite easy. We think it's hatred or anger, but it's actually indifference. Because often, if you're really angry with somebody, you've got some skin in the game. There's something in there. Um, whereas actually indifference, you know, or just sort of polite indifference, you know, you and I, we, we don't know each other. So we, the, the, we don't care desperately how the other person's life goes um, because we don't have enough attention and bandwidth to do it. So that, I think, is the opposite of love, is indifference and actually not caring 
maybe even even more so. What is the meaning of freedom to you? Well, I think freedom is a very complicated um, idea because we have to balance our calling, that's what we're here for, um, against our duty because we have duties to other people. You, we have duties as a parent, as a partner, as a, the child of somebody. Um, but we also have responsibility for ourselves and where we're going, where we're going with our lives. So, you know, that um, let's take the idea of freedom um, and responsibility. So, um, I my calling is to write books. So I have to be free enough to write my have time to write my books. But I've also got a responsibility to my clients and being available for them and to my partner and various other people. And I have to balance those two things. So the idea of freedom, I can do anything I want, um, is something that I rather chafe against. But I do have to be true to my calling and my destiny. Now, I think you and I, if we were in a relationship, could negotiate how to balance my, um, my calling and your calling. And we could be free enough I think that's a good word, free enough to do mm. our necessary things, the reason why we're here, but um, also um, take into consideration the feelings and the needs of other people and to balance those things up. So um, I think we just have to be very careful with the words freedom. At this time, what do you think is the world's greatest need? Um, I think that what the world's greatest need is um, to actually look deeper. Um, we have a tendency to be distracted by um, our phones, the, the, the busyness of the world. Um, and we can be so busy seeing what's on the surface, we don't understand what's underneath. And unless you sort of understand what's under, you, you understand what's underneath, you can often be controlled by it. You can actually be busy running around without actually realizing you're just, for example, this is a psychological example, just fulfilling the requirements that your parents laid down when you were young. You know, they wanted you to be a success. They wanted you to be like this. Um, and if you're not careful and you're not looking deep enough, you're fulfilling their needs and their requirements rather than actually leading your life. Or you're leading the life that your partner wants you to leave rather than your life, which is also so not particularly good. And, you know, looking at the political situation and the coronavirus and everything else like that, it's very easy to get caught up in the headlines and not actually understand the deeper truths and the deeper learning. So I think what the world needs now is to look deeper mm, within right andrew well it can be within but um it can also be looking deeper without as well what is your understanding and idea of peace i think peace is a dialogue with other people um it's an ongoing dialogue um, and it's one that respects both opinions 
and is not afraid of difference. Um, you have to go back to the same word again, deeper, to get into true peace with other people and with yourself. I have a few more questions left here. This next one's about God, or the idea of God. What, where, and who is God to you? Oh, wow. You really do go for it, don't you? <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, um, let's start with simple bits. I believe in God, um, but I think it's more important to live the questions like, you know, who is God? What is God? What is my relationship with God? Rather than have clear answers. So I'm living the questions. Um, I hope that I have a conversation. I certainly hope that um, God whispers in my ear. But exactly what God is, if I had to do a picture, I would not, would not know where to start. So, and how to describe that. Poof. Um, but I think that's an ongoing search that we all have. Do you see a difference between spirituality and religion? Yes. Um, I think religion tends to be a set of beliefs that is generally um, laid down by the elders of the, of the tribe. Um, and you either believe or you're a sinner or whatever. Um, whereas spirituality is a very personal thing. So if something is truly religious, is decided by the Pope um, or other important people within the organization, whether something is spiritual is something that you decide for yourself. So it's very much a personal uh, relationship rather than something that is mediated through a group of other people. But, you know, for me personally, the, that both of those things are important. Yeah, I like that. What do you think is the purpose of life, the human experience? Um, I would say it is to two things. One, to be ourselves. And number two is to learn more um, about ourselves so that we can better become ourselves. Um, Yep, it's about becoming yourself, which sounds like the easiest thing in the world, but actually we have all sorts of programming that's going on um, underneath that we are not necessarily always that aware of. So true. And that society is not very keen on us becoming ourselves. They'd much rather sell us something. It's an, an unlearning process, more than learning in a way, isn't it, Andrew? Yeah, it's sort of, sometimes, in some ways, it's almost like going back to the beginning, in a sense that possibly when we started out, we sort of had a much clearer idea of what, we, what was right for us, and we sort of get lost along the way. So, I mean, one of the questions I sometimes ask my, my clients is, you know, what have you left behind that you need now? Yeah, in spirituality, they say remembering, just asking the right questions so we remember what we are, essentially. So let's talk about your work. How did you become a writer? Um, I became a writer effectively on the deathbed of my partner. 
um, it was the only way that I could cope and make sense of the world. And in a sense, I was a sort of writer before in the sense I was a journalist who um, would turn up somewhere, write a few words, file it, and it would be broadcast or um, later printed in newspapers. But actually becoming a writer in my soul, it's, I sort of didn't really have a choice. It was either that or go mad, basically. I would say it's still the same reason. You know, if ever I'm going through something difficult, I open up my computer and I start journaling. Um, and that helps me make sense of it um, or keep a diary. What is about writing that it's so healing? Well, I think it's a form of meditation, to be perfectly honest. It allows you, your thoughts have to slow down because your fingers can't move as quickly as your brain can. Right. Um, okay. And as you slow down, you begin to sort of think at a slower rate and at a deeper rate. And you, know, you can begin to see the corners of things rather than just the center. Um, and sometimes the um, answers are not in the most obvious place and the corners can be really fruitful places to look. What inspired you to become a marital therapist? Well, a very long time ago, when, um, when God was a child, I used to work on the radio and I used to, to host a personal problem program. This is back to my journalism background. And I had a panel of experts, but um, I unwittingly was doing two things that are very important for therapy. One is asking questions to open people up. And after the panel of experts had spoken to them, summing up what the advice had been and actually drawing people out and summing up the list, the learning is sort of like half of what therapy is about. Um, and I sort of thought, well, actually, this is really interesting. This is something that really speaks to me. Maybe I should study this myself. And so that is how it began. But I've been doing this for something like 35 years. It might even be longer than that. I've sort of given up counting. So it's a bit like asking me, how did I first start to breathe? It's almost as fundamental as that. What was the intention of writing your book, Learn to Love Yourself Enough? I think it was probably to get across the idea of enough and of balance, because um, we have this idea that we always have to be better and everything's got to be bigger and more wonderful. Um, and the idea of loving yourself enough is an idea that comes from Uh, an English pediatrician and psychologist called Donald Winnicott. And he talked about the idea of being a good enough mother or a good enough therapist or a good enough broadcaster or a good enough anything, because we always think we've got to be perfect. You know, if I was the perfect interviewee, I wouldn't stumble. I would be able to get my thoughts together. I would have such wisdom that would be you know, handed down and everything would be wonderful. But let's take the idea of being a good enough mother. Um, the thing is, if you are such a wonderful mother that you can actually um, 
find in advance all the needs of your child and fulfill them, um, they would never leave home. They would live with you forevermore. Um, and actually, often it's when things don't quite go according to plan that we actually learn and grow. We become independent because we need to become independent because um, actually leaving up to somebody else to fulfill things for us isn't actually a very good place to be. So if you were the perfect mother and could fulfill every one of your child's needs, that wouldn't be very good for the child. You obviously don't want to be, and I'm going to put inverted commas here, a bad mother and you know not show up and fulfill their needs. Um, and we'll perhaps look later at why that might not be a bad idea, why might that might not be a good idea. Um, so we need to get away from this just sort of black and white, good and bad. And so that's why I love this idea of good enough. So, you know, you're a good enough parent um, that uh, you're providing for your child, but you're not helicoptering and micromanaging for them. And you're not actually ignoring them either. Good enough. And, you know, if I was the perfect therapist that somehow managed to, you know, provide all the needs of my clients and gave them all the learning, none of it would stick. They need to learn it for themselves. So, you know, I have to be good enough to understand, to support and help, but I shouldn't be doing the job for them. So that's why I have to be good enough. Um, and it is such an important concept. Um, and we just beat ourselves up because we're not perfect. Um, and that's why good enough is such an important concept. Yes, and it is. I understand the idea behind these psychological patterns that we have. And I know you talk about the past, how it affects us. And I'll have some questions here. But before that, I usually say when it comes to self-love, I, I say unconditional self-love. That's something that we need to practice. What do you think about that? Well, I think I want to sort of agree with you and disagree at the same time. I think truly, truly important things that both the, the, uh, both the positive and the negative are um, true. So it is incredibly important that you give yourself unconditional love. Um, but it's also important that you can stand back and see, hmm, that didn't work. Or, oh dear, I hurt somebody else. What should I do about it? Um, so you have to love yourself unconditionally, but you also, maybe it's part of um, unconditional love, you also have to be able to look at yourself through not through rose-colored glasses all the time. You've got to look through plain glass and see, um, you know, what that didn't work. That was actually selfish. I didn't consider the needs of that person. Yeah, the idea, I guess, it sounds really great, this idea that we can accept ourselves with our, our, our flaws and all the mistakes we make in this moment and then from that acceptance and state of mind we create these possibilities we can see better and more clearly and that's why 
these two ideas, are, these two concepts are equally true, that you have to love yourself unconditionally, and you've also actually got to step back and look at yourself with dispassionate, look through dispassionate lenses mm. too. Yes, I agree. It goes back to that word you used earlier, the balance, always uh, being almost in between extremes, not going one way or another, right? But the key, I guess, is uh, acceptance and being open. They seem to work really well. What causes low self-esteem and what are the signs when we have low self-esteem? Um, I think at the very core of um, self-esteem is the first relationships you had with your mother and father because you learn about how acceptable you are to the world through their eyes. So if you smile and gurgle, and they mirror that back and pick you up and give you a hug, everything is good with the world. And therefore, I am good too, because bear in mind, when you're a small child, you do not have the emotional and the mental capacity to think in much deeper than that. Um, and it's up to our parents to help us balance ourselves and self-regulate. But also, because no parent is perfect, um, there are times when they are not available. Perhaps they've got another child, or um, they have—they've uh, the, got you know the, the, the pan is about to boil over, um, and they can't—they can't come to you and pick you up. Um, and then, because we haven't got the emotional um, maturity to realise, oh. Um, she has to to take care of my sister or brother, or the pan's about to boil over. We think that there is that the world is bad, and it's bad because we're bad. That at the, is at the most fundamental um, level, um, and we get taught along the way to, for example, please. Because if we please people, then people think we're good. Um, and that can make you feel that acceptance is very conditional on doing things. Or you can feel that you're not accepted. Or you're so wonderful, they want to eat you up. Um, and that's a little bit frightening. So you can, you can begin to see how those people treat you we sort of the the fundamental building block is when we're small we think i am as i am treated but you and i because we've been on the planet a bit longer than a, than small children know that the world is more complicated than that you you know you're doing really well um and bad things can happen not because you're a bad person but because you know the world is a complex place and sometimes the bad things might even be good or have a good component mm. to them. But, you know, this is, these are concepts that, um, that you and I, who spend a lot of time thinking about them and have both <laughs> written lots of books on it, are still struggling with. So God help a five-year-old with it. I'm wondering why it takes so long to realize that influence of our parents on our self-esteem. For me, it took... 30 
seven years. <laughs> 37. That's a lot of time. <laughs> yeah, well, I wouldn't be at all surprised if your if your parents gave you the same messages that mine did. You know? It was a long time ago, you know. Um, that's the past. Stop dwelling in the past. Look to the future. Um, I did my best, you know, so forget about it. So, yeah. you know, we're, we're not actually invited to stop and think and to look. We're, in, we're invited to buy this now. Click here. Do you think that low self-esteem sometimes is confused with kindness and gentleness? Um, how do you mean exactly? It's a known kind of quote, a statement that kindness is confused or often seen as weakness. So do you think that sometimes by being kind, that can be perceived as uh, being weak or perhaps having a low self-esteem? Mm, um... I, I don't know, because just because somebody else rattles off doesn't necessarily mean you have to believe them. Um, and just because somebody starts, um, do you know what projecting is? So projecting is the stuff that I can't own myself. So, you know, I have a public persona that I'm this clever, wise old man. And of course, at the same time, I have all of this stuff that I'm hiding away, which is my own stupidity um, and my ignorance and, um, um, and the fact that sometimes I feel like a small child. So we, we sort of, if you're not aware of all of this stuff, it's hanging around and I can push it off onto somebody else. I can say, oh, well, the problem is that um, you ask the wrong questions. You're stupid, and so I can actually deal with my stuff by pushing it all onto you, projecting it all onto you. But you're wise enough that if I say, oh, that's a rotten question, to know that's actually probably about my fears of inadequacy rather than your question. Um, and the fact that, you know, if I'd done that, you being a very polite and kind person would have just sort of let it go. That doesn't make you weak. It just means you choose your battles. You know what belongs to you and you don't get upset because somebody else is jumping up and down and waving their knickers in the air. Right. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> so, so I don't think we're talking about weakness. Low self-esteem is often about listening too much to other people and actually not listening to the, the still small voice inside, which um, often knows better than what everybody else is um, shouting at the top of their voices. Do you call that voice the intuition? Um, intuition is part of it, yes, certainly it is, but it's also a deeper, it's a deeper personal wisdom as well. What is the difference between them? Well, intuition is sort of um, can often be more about thinking into the future. You know, actually, my intuition tells me, told me that it'd be a good thing to talk to you. Mm -hmm. um, so that I would enjoy myself, I would learn something and it would be fun. That's what my intuition did. I don't think that is 
wisdom. Um, you know, I might be connecting with your wisdom, but I don't think that's intuition. I think there's, I think there is a difference. What it is, I don't think really matters that much. Do you think that low self-esteem affects more women than men? Oh, no, just men are better at hiding it. They're so busy hiding their stuff by pushing it onto women and jumping up and down and shouting at them that you sort of don't notice it. I mean, most men are terrified, just like most women are terrified. We're, we're sort of all the same, I think, underneath. It's just we've been socialized differently. You know, men have been trained to fix and therefore feel that they have to take control. Women have often been socialized to look after people. So they're often much more prepared to listen to other people. Um, but, you know, we, we sort of can get trapped in those old roles um, because, you know, there are men who are very good at looking after people and there are women who are very good at taking charge. And the idea that, you know, our, our, how we were born defines what roles we're going to, to fulfill is a little bit limiting to be put in mildly. Is there a difference between liking ourselves and loving ourselves? Well, I think liking, my just initial feeling is liking is much more on the surface, you know. Right, right. I uh, like my office, um, but love is a much deeper kind of, uh, kind of thing. So, yeah, sure, it's good to like ourselves, but I think loving is much more about accepting ourselves. Talk to me about swinging from high to low self-esteem. Right. Well, the best way to cover up my low self-esteem would be to become a big person and have huge successes and take charge. Um, and, you know, I would become this wonderful person. Um, and, you know, I'm going to be a big success. And of course, um, you know, my next book is probably not going to sell five million copies and become the Oprah book of the week. And uh, the Dalai Lama is probably not going to fly to my office to come and see me, um, which won't come as a surprise to you. But um, at that point, I begin to feel a failure. And I'm like the stupidest person that I ever thought that these things would happen. And I'm sort of reminded of a wonderful quote by Rudyard Kipling. Do you know who Rudyard Kipling was? He was a British writer, best known for the jungle book, but he wrote this wonderful poem called If. Mm, yes. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Yes, yes, yeah. If you can beautiful meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same, yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And we... We fall between considering ourselves to be, you know, the most wonderful person in the world to being the worst person in the world. And in fact, it's really both of them a self-inflation because, you know, I promise you, I'm not the worst person in the world and I'm certainly not the best either. I'm just hopefully good enough. Yes, Andrew, I like that a lot. I'm just wondering if why it's so challenging to live this way, to understand this, just to be in between. Yeah, it's sort of, I, I had a client recently who said, well, I can give up having to be a success 
but I'm really, you know, I, I can't give up the idea that my life has been a failure. Um, and it's amazing how deep that is. Mm. And I think often it's to do with our biography. You know, you, we've got parents that, you know, my parents wanted me to, they didn't care what I did as long as I was happy. Right. Well, you know, I'm afraid to say, I don't think I'm here to be happy. Mm. I think that I much would rather have a meaningful life rather than a happy life. Mm. Happy sounds a bit sort of um, surface, but, you know, the fact that I'm talking about it all this time later and rebelling against it just shows how deep those first messages were, you know, and we can then ask ourselves, am I happy enough? And oh, we can get stuck into those same grooves. True. In a way, it goes back again to that word that you used in the beginning, going deeper, just understanding ourselves better, deeper, and life itself and others, which kind of connects to compassion and kindness. And there's many layers to everything as well. Um, you know, what's happening on this, what's happening in our unconscious, what's happening in the greater society that we're tapping into. I mean, the world is multi-layered. And balance or not being balanced is actually normal too. I like that because then we accepted that too. That's okay to be out of balance from time to time. Yeah, as long, I mean, what, what is really important is we're aware of it because if we're aware of it, we can, um, we can sort of get back more into balance. There's nothing, you know, that... If you live consciously, as opposed to with your eyes closed, your fingers in your ears and shouting la, 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 which is how we sort of spend quite a lot of our time, you know, it's not a recipe for, 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 for a great life. So we've, we've got to be conscious. So being conscious, that means just knowing what's happening when it happens whatever that is <laughs> yes in all the layers now we can't be aware of all the layers all the time but you know we can have some moments where we stop and you know just watch the clouds go by so to speak talk to me about i think this is a personality types maximizer and satisfier um Right. Well, a maximizer is somebody who has to get the most out of everything. So they not only have to choose the right holiday, but they have to get the right price and have them the ultimate experience. Um, whereas satisfiers uh, are people who sort of, um, well, they're the ones that um, are perfectly happy with good enough. It doesn't matter if they have missed out you know, they they went to they came to Berlin, but um, they didn't see everything. Um, a maximizer would be disappointed. A satisfier would say, "Well, but we did see um, the Brandenburg Gate, and we saw the the remains of the wall." Um, it sort of doesn't matter that they didn't see where David Bowie used to live. And our society is pushing us more to become maximizers because. You know, if only we download this app, our life, we can live our life to the max. I love the way you talk about the different kinds, the way we can identify friends 
the negative ones, uplifting ones, and the destructive ones. Talk to me about these kinds of people around us. Well, I think you need to be aware of the energy of your different friends. There are some people who are cheerleaders and um, there are other people um, who actually drain your energy. And that's fine. Um, but you do need to make certain that all your friends are not actually people who phone you up at four o'clock in the morning and expect something from you. Um, I often have clients who have been that person and then suddenly they need something and everybody else is too busy. Um, you do need to have a, 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 a balance of friends and, you know, you have to accept your friends for what they are. You know, some friends um, are ones that you would have a good time with and others are there for the bad times. And, you know, if you expect your good time friends to, you know, you might be surprised, but, you know, you might also not be disappointed that they don't want to listen to your woes till three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, I like that, what you said, too, that it's important that we accept people for who they are as well. But um, the idea of being aware sort of creates or helps to create the boundaries. And looking at all your friends, you know, a little bit dispassionate, what kind of friends have I got is actually terribly revealing. If you've actually got lots of friends who are in one kind of thing, it could suggest that you are a little bit unbalanced, that you might need some. I mean, I, one of the things I think is absolutely wonderful is to have older friends and younger friends so that you just get some different perspectives, you know, rather than all your friends being exactly like you, you know, all your friends having the same number of children who go to the same school um, or everybody being at exactly the same life stage as you. It is really wonderful. Um, to have, you know, one of one of my best friends is 91 years old. And, you know, it is just so wonderful to have all of that life experience at, at my hand. Well, we can have that perspective, as you said. That's what makes uh, life so interesting, the differences. Well, just the fact they've survived, you know, in this case, my friends, you know, that um, she saw terrible things in the Second World War. And, you know, she was not overwhelmed by them. And at the moment, when we're seeing all sorts of terrible things, it's easy for us to, to feel overwhelmed and that, you know, we're living through the worst of times and nothing will ever be the same. And, you know, we're all going to the dogs in a handcart um, and actually have somebody who's sort of been there, seen it and done it and said, yeah, another handcart will be along in a moment is sort of quite good. Kim believes really be... Um reprogrammed or replaced, added? <laughs> I think they can be challenged. I mean, one of my favorite sayings is accept the feelings and challenge the thoughts. So you accept the fact that I'm angry and then you challenge the thought. You know, I'm angry because I didn't get that parking place. Well, you know, actually, did that parking place belong to you? Um, <laughs> and <laughs> was that that person deliberately out to get you when they took that parking place you know you can challenge those thoughts and you can look deeper and say you know why does this feel so upsetting so you can understand yourself better and you can um, challenge the thoughts but accept the feelings it's okay to be angry yeah never heard it that way before i love that yeah what was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself as of today? 
Ooh, I think the hardest thing to learn about myself is um, how to surrender, um, how to let go of, you know, captain control that wants to control everything. And, you know, um, corporal security wants everything to be safe. Um, so that's the hardest thing to do. If you knew he would die soon, would you make any change in your life or do anything differently? Oh, I think I would. Um, I've got an awful lot of books I need to finish, if that's the case. <laughs> so books to finish. Would you try to see someone, move to a different place? I've already moved to a different place. I've already moved to a different country and learning a different language. So I think I've done enough moving. Um, yeah, of course, I'd have a group. And if I was going to die in the next half hour, the various people I would obviously want to say goodbye to. But... Um, I'm afraid to say I'm thinking of that Garth Brooks song. Do you know the one, If to never ne if Tomorrow Never Comes? And you sort of have to live like that, thinking if tomorrow never came, to actually be living your life today, not at some time in the future. What are three things about life you know for sure? Oh, well, the first thing I know for sure is I know nothing. <laughs> um, number two, I... Uh, this is more a case, I don't think we're here to enjoy ourselves. I think we're here for something greater than that. Um, oh, and the, the, um, the third thing I know is the most important time is now. Because now, the eternal now, that's the sort of the now that um, is always with us, is the place that we should try and live. But that is the hardest thing in the world to do. Thank you so much for your presence, Andrew, and for your wisdom. And thank you. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? Right. The place to go is www.andrewgmarshall.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and on Facebook. I'm Andrew G. Marshall Therapy on Facebook. I have a Pinterest um, site. And, you know, available in all good bookshops, as they say. Thank you so much again, Andrew, and we'll talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Andrew G. Marshall, please visit his website, andrewgmarshall.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Bickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now.